0: Stepping back and stroking to Bogdanovich thinking about a... Everybody, this is uh, Monday afternoon, four o'clock. We have Game Four tonight, seven thirty p.m. Eastern Time. As always, I am your host, Austin Krell, along with a, a friend of mine through the business, Brian Teporic. He covers the Sixers. I'm not really sure who it's for because there's like a bunch of different outlets listed. I'm gonna go for Forbes at the moment because I think that's yes. the right one. Yeah. Uh, but Forbes fan sided, and he's the quality editor at Bleacher Report. He's also a new dad for the first time. So, so he's got all of this chaos going on <laughs> in, in the support household right now. Brian, how are you?
1: I'm good, Austin. How are you?
0: Uh, I'm probably a little less tired than you are. Yeah. But I still feel yeah. like these playoffs have tired me out. My first playoff <laughs> coming to the NBA. But I can't I don't think I can complain compared to you.
1: No, you know what? The baby actually started sleeping through the night two weeks ago. But the thing that you don't find out until after you have a baby is that they go through these sleep regressions. Yes. So like he slept for seven hours for two weeks, and then a couple nights ago was just like, nope, I'm done with this. So yeah, it's been a rough couple days, but for you you a <laughs>
0: couple months.
1: Hopefully, game four puts me in a better mood.
0: That's right. That's right. So big game tonight, obviously. I, I don't think we can understate just how important uh, Danny Green is to this team. Um, even if he's not always lighting up the box score. Um, or um, at least mitigating his end of the damage on defense, he's still a guy that's been an an invaluable leader uh, to this group on the floor. He's been there vocally when things have gotten maybe a little bit rough in game sometimes. So he's an invaluable guy um, to this team. And even if he's not knocking down shots or having a good series, um, he's still a guy that his value sometimes you'll see – like, he's always in, this, in the right position on defense. So even if the value isn't there, like where he's like, you can look at a, at a spreadsheet and see it, there's still things that because of his presence on the court, it kind of stops and stymies the Hawks from going in, the, in, a, in a certain direction. And it puts him back going to, you know, the other side of the court as a result of him being in the right place. So invaluable guy there for sure.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a real bummer. Um, As you said, I mean, he, this has not been his finest playoff series by any means, but yeah, you you can at least trust he's going to be in the right place at the right time. He's not going to lead to defensive breakdowns because he's the one who's blowing a coverage. Um, I think unfortunately the Hawks do have the offensive personnel that have given him some trouble. I mean, Trey Young in game one, we saw they switched him to Bogdanovich and Bogdanovich also, was having his way with Danny a little bit. So, you know, I think it's a loss that the Sixers can survive in this series. They're going to need him back to win the title though.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, And I mean, I I think by, the team hasn't really given any kind of indication as to how bad (laughs) it was yet, but those, those, uh, those, what is it? It's the calf, the calf, calf calf those are, are not fun injuries. Those are like the one kind of strain that you can't really like get a feel for. You can't really sort of, um, you know, massage away from on a game to game, game, game basis. So he has to just get better and, and, you know, and, and get through that. I mean, that's what Kevin Durant had. He came back and then tore his Achilles. So, um, you gotta be careful with that for sure. Um, but, Doc does have a decision tonight of whether to start Corkma, Stiebel, Milton Hill, or Tyrese Maxey, uh, I guess would be the, the ostensible uh, pieces there to go with. Um, and I've been thinking about this game for a while because, like, everything has gone so well for them, not just in this series except for the first half of game one, but these <laughs> playoffs. Um, and it, so, like, losing Danny, is it sort of messes up with, like, the rhythm and, a, mm-hmm. and and the continuity that at the same time, if, if at the end of it all, we're saying, oh, they lost the series because Danny Green got hurt. You probably weren't a real contender anyway. So
1: yeah. That's a good so, point. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I I, I don't think they're going to lose the series um, by any stretch of the imagination because of Danny Green. However, I do think it poses an, an interesting and maybe difficult uh, decision to make do you want the defense or do you want the offense? And uh, yesterday uh, a reporter tried to get Doc to bite on on the, do you want defense or offense? And Doc was like, I'm going to start a 76er. So I thought that
1: was pretty funny. Uh,
0: (laughs) Who would you go with?
1: Yeah, it's a good question. You know, when Danny went down, my gut instinct was to start Thibel in his place because I just figured Ben on Trey, Thibel on Bogdan, I, I leaned defense over offense. Yeah. That said, I mean, we saw in the second half, Korkmaz started, and you know I, he's not the reason they blew up in that game. It was aggressive Ben Simmons is why we they blew up in the game. But Korkmaz does provide the advantage of you can't hide Trey Young on him. I thought game three was really the first time they actively sought out Trey Young on defense and just yep. kept trying to attack him uh cork in particular when he came off the bench in the first quarter and really started that rally late in the first i thought that was big for him and they really seemed to give him the confidence really i guess my big question is which sixers stayed after game three to get up shots because it seems like that's been the, the right guy <laughs> the secret sauce for the last you know shake did it now burke did it so like yeah. i hope tyrese maxey was at the gym or george hill uh but i i, I lean actually starting Furk um for the, the offense to not give Trey a place to hide defensively. I do worry that Bogdan is going to go after him hard. And if that's the case, you probably have to, you know, pull the cord quick and get Thibault in there. Um, but at the same time, you know, if if you start Simmons and Thibel and one of those guys picks up two early fouls, that screws up what you're trying to do defensively against Trey as well. So I yeah. think you know, Doc has, all season has really seemed to favor continuity with this, you know, mo- keep, mostly keeping the starters together, mostly keeping the bench unit together. Um, you know, we know who the main guys off the bench are going to be George, Thiebold, Dwight, and then just whichever of the guards, Shake, Maxi, Furcon have it going at the time. Yeah. So I thought on especially after Shake's game two explosion, I thought his role was probably most up in the air. So I think, you know, starting him putting him with the starters where you know you're not relying on him as a main offensive source. It's just like Ben's going to drive and kick. And if Furkan's open, he's not going to have a conscience. He's going to shoot that shot. Uh, So I think, you know, there's no perfect answer here, but I think Cork is probably the way they're going to go just based on how game three played out.
0: Yeah. I did a little bit of digging today before shoot around and I totally understand if you didn't see these numbers because you have a, you have a son, you have a wife, you have a life. I do not have any of those. things. (laughs) I naturally do fish around for, for extraneous, uh, stats. And what I found today was, uh, I, I looked at five guys, I think there's five plausible starters, uh, to go, that could be put into that unit. Uh, Maxie was one, um, Hill was another shake, Thalwell and Corkmaz as we've talked about, um, Furcon has played 28 minutes with the other four starters plus 33 per hundred. So that's pretty good. That's really, that's that's not, that's not pretty good. That's very good. It's okay. Okay. Sample size, (laughs) obviously not too high. Um, The next best was shake at 50. Well, no, he was the best, but his sample size was higher at 50.7. So they're plus 50.7 in 50 minutes. So that's, that's very, 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 uh, you know, very, very promising. Mm-hmm. Better sample size, too. So that they're blowing people away with that lineup. Wouldn't shock me there. Um, Theibel is only plus 6.3 in 23 minutes. Uh, now, that kind of makes sense, though, because with the idea of the shooting and the spacing – the defense might be st- fantastic, but the offense is going to lend itself to a struggle, obviously. Surprisingly, Hill has not played with the starters yet. So I thought that might have been an option because of, like, the veteran presence. Dan, you know, he can make a three. Uh, he can defend well. He did really good job denying Trey Young uh, different looks in in off ball. Um, Max, he's a plus 44.6 in only six, only four minutes of play. So <laughs> I don't I – don't, those are all, like, mind-boggling numbers, but – you can make a very a very stringent argument against starting any of those guys. Um, I think it's going to be miles when all is said and done, like you do. But I think it's because, like with Danny, he can't really he doesn't really put the ball on the deck, um, mm-hmm. and that lends itself to an advantage for Trey Young because all he has to do really is just. It, you, you can hide him on there, but all he has to do is just close out. And as long as he's not like shuffling his feet like an idiot, as long as, <laughs> as, long as he's not like like jumping into guys, you can basically, you can, you know, you you can mitigate the damage that, that, a, that a, a, a standstill shooter can do. Guy mm. like corkmaz like though, can put the ball on the floor a little bit, even if you don't want him to, we still can <laughs> to an extent. And he is the type of guy that could kind of make, uh, Trey Young work a little bit more than a Danny Green could. Um, and I think on top of that, like you, if you talk to the, the players um, in their post game interviews, they're going to say like, Oh, like, well, Ben will say, ah, I love playing with FERC. Joel says <laughs> he loves playing with FERC. That matters what they, who they like to play with. And if they like to play with those guys, it's because those guys not only perform, but they make them look better. And that means that there's going to be better uh, chemistry on the floor in that starting unit, Less turnovers and early in the game, we saw in game one, turnovers were a huge issue. So mm-hmm. the stabilizing mechanism there, I think, is Furkan Korkmaz, and that's why I think they're going to go with Furkan in game in, in game four.
1: Yeah, it, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me. The George Hills one interesting because after uh, the trade deadline, I remember you know in Daryl's press conference describing kind of what George brought to the table. He was talking about um, you know how George is a great two way player and with Danny. You could have a closing lineup with, you know, the big three and then Danny and George where it's like you have five two-way guys. Uh, So I guess it makes sense that, you know, he was replacing Seth in that instead of Danny. But I'd be interested to see George with the starters, even if he doesn't get the start, just play him at times with them. Because it does feel like he just – they need more from him offensively in this series. Uh, Yeah. You know he's he's talked a lot since the trade deadline about just kind of trying to feel his way out. He's coming back from the thumb injury too. It's a new team. There haven't hasn't been a ton of practice time. Um, but you know there you acquire George Hill for a reason. It isn't just his defense. He's a great yeah. great catch a catch and shoot guy, but also can operate on and off the ball as well. So I mean the good thing is that Doc has options, right? It's not like. Yeah something like Danny is so irreplaceable to this team it's not
0: James Ennis I'll tell you that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) no definitely and it's not you know like when Kyrie goes down in the Nets game yesterday it's like all of a sudden the Nets are just drawing dead basically like I don't think the Sixers are going into this game being like all right we're packing it up going back to Philly down to your tied two two like they they still have a very realistic chance of winning this game
0: yeah and speaking of the Nets series like not to say that we can automatically deduce that the same injuries would have happened because every, you know, like it's a butterfly effect. But those concerns that the Nets now have, where they don't have Kyrie because of the ankle for who knows how long, there there seems to be an a sort of an unknown as to when James Harden comes back. One day he's on a doorstep of the day. There's a gap between. Right now, it's looking like Kevin Durant is the only available far to suit up for game five. And by the way, the Nets traded away basically all their depth to get James Harden. So that's not looking too great. So that is the risk that you take in trading for a guy like James Harden. And it, right now it, it's looking like it could very well come back to bite uh, the Nets and leave them short of the conference finals. But we'll, we'll see about that a lot, long way to go there. Um, but it doesn't look like it's going to get any better for Trey young because we, what was just reported Minutes ago, NBA's competition committee committee met Monday to further explore rule changes to restrict unnatural motions on jump shots uh, players use to draw fouls. NBA wants to limit players, including stars like Trey Young and James Harden, <laughs> from leaning backwards and sideways and to draw fouls. So evidently, bullying works. <laughs> <laughs> Wait,
1: can they can they implement this rule in the next three hours? Is it possible?
0: I think I think the owners probably not approve that, it's yeah.
1: a but, but it's
0: one can dream, right? Yeah. Um, that's interesting that like right now like, we're in the, like in the, we're in the throes of competition. Yeah,
1: right, when
0: that report comes out. Well, um, Matisse
1: has so many like what the hell? I did nothing wrong. Reactions after he's the outside third one. Of the building,
0: holding like a protest sign. Yeah,
1: right? like, <laughs> like, like like enact
0: the rule, please. Yeah. Um. So you have the Clippers out west, and they obviously got rid of. uh, got rid of Doc Rivers last season, and it looked like for a while at least it was possible that they could meet the same fate that they met last year, if not worse, depending on how the first round played out. But, you know, I got to tell you, I think Doc has done a really good job, not just this season, but in these playoffs with making adjustments. Um, In game one, like he – would. I asked him this because I, I, I guess I could have I w- I worded it better where he wasn't like, "Well, no, I wasn't trying to lose the game." But <laughs> it felt to me like he was trying to feel out the series mm-hmm. a little bit, to feel out the matchups. And so he puts he puts Trey he puts Danny on Trey, and Trey lights him up like a Christmas tree. Yeah. Um, ever since then, I think Danny's possessions on Trey have been completely minimized. In Game Two, it was like I think like two possessions total in the half court. Um, in Game Three, obviously Danny gets hurt, so he can't really qualify quantify that but it feels like they've done a really good job of just trying to keep size on him at all times even like behind the pick and rolls like they're just running spread pick and rolls with clint or with john collins tobias is coming up to show high and they're and trey's like oh i can't shoot over him i gotta uh, I, I gotta like put this on the floor or it bends fighting through it and getting over it and they're 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 just really kind of taking away trey's vision of the rim and they're also t- making it harder for him to see over bigger defenders i feel like because they're they cloud they're, they're crowding him with so much size and i think that's really paid off and it's sort of mitigated all the damage that he did since game one
1: yeah i mean doc i think culture wise this whole season the players have preached about him repeatedly but yeah i totally agree with you throughout these playoffs other than the first half of game one he's just it seems like he has his a great pulse on the team and he knows yeah. like which buttons to push at the right time. I mean, how many times have we panicked when the all-bench lineup comes out or like when Shake Milton comes out at the end of the third quarter in game two? They're only up one point. We're like, Shake Milton hasn't hit a shot in a month. Like, what yeah. are you doing? And then he completely swings that game. furcon in game three. You know, I didn't expect to see him a ton, and all of a sudden he's hitting big shots in the first quarter. And finishes with I think fourteen points and is now looking at a potential spot start yeah. in game four and beyond. So it, it does seem like Doc just no I mean so far at least, knock on wood, this continues. But so far he has pushed the right buttons at the right times. And yeah, I mean it's a testament to the players who are for executing the scheme, especially Joel Embiid on a torn meniscus. But you know, he talked about like the cat and mouse game he's playing defensively where he's going up high sometimes or he's playing drop sometimes. He just doesn't they're varying their coverages, which I think is good. Like we see, we've seen, you know from the Bucks, especially in the past few years in the playoffs where they have their drop scheme and that's all they do. And if you figure that out, goodbye Milwaukee Bucks. The yeah. sixers so far, okay, yeah, the Hawks beat the pants off of them in the first half of game one, but they weren't so stubborn as to say, okay, well, Know the players just weren't executing the scheme. It's like, oh, no, maybe the scheme sucked. Let's, let's try something different. Yeah, <laughs> and it it, 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 like, I'm seeing this with the Clippers too. It just drives me crazy when you have two of the best perimeter defenders in the NBA with you know, Ben and Matisse for Philly, Kawhi and Paul George for the Clippers. If you're going against like a high usage, three level scoring guard, just have your two best guys defend that guy. Like we don't need to get into the switch everything. I feel like sometimes coaches outthink themselves here. Yeah. Whereas <laughs> this really shouldn't be like doc all year has said, Danny struggled with the type of guards that Trey young is. So I don't know. You know, I, I agree with you. I think they were probably trying to feel out the series and, you know, get Ben and Matisse maybe just to like be aware of Trey's shenanigans. Cause yeah. they knew as the series goes on, we're going to need to put you guys on that more. So Here's what you need to watch out for so you don't get into foul trouble. But as soon as we, you know, as soon as they made that switch, it's just been the Sixers have been dominating.
0: Yeah, and like, and Doc said it. Like, if you go back and you look at the the, the games they played against the Hawks uh, early in the regular season, the game first game that was the COVID game, so you had yeah. like you had like, it was literally like Dwight and Joe were in the starting. Yeah. That's that's the level of like scientific. Shenanigans that the Sixers were up to when the when when the COVID stuff was happening, <laughs> and then uh, game two, which was the doubleheader in Philly, that was like Trey Young wasn't there, Bo Don wasn't there, and the Sixers just you know ran out of the building. And they and credit to the Sixers, you know, Trey came back for the third game, and that's what Doc said they watched footage of is the third game mm-hmm. to get an idea. Um, but in that third game, Danny like was very very able to handle Trey. There was a play where like Trey like had to like pass out of a shot because, because Danny wasn't falling for his antics. But then again, Bodon wasn't playing in that game or Mm -hmm. neither neither was Deandre Hunter. So like in theory, maybe if you have another shooter on the court, instead of Solomon Hill, the help defender plays a little bit closer and then suddenly Trey is like, well, I have this angle now. I can't, I I can attack it. Whereas he didn't have that in the third game of the season. So there's a bunch of different testing going on throughout the series, but you make a great point about, like, the different guys showing up. Like, Doc had a really good pulse on his team in Game 2 in the second half with Shake coming in, uh, Furkan Game 3, and really Game 5 against the Wizards. Like, he mm-hmm. he he has done a masterful job of pulling all the right strings and having a good gut for this team, um, which is something that Brett Brown didn't do, um, something that Brett Brown didn't have. And I think that speaks to really his not only his basketball acumen but his, his knowledge of the game and understanding of what he has – and um, I would venture to say it's probably won them at least game, maybe two in this in not only in these playoffs, but really in this series because I mean they they win game two because of Shake Milton. Um, you know, for Khan's points. I don't want to say the separator in, in game three, mm-hmm. but it changes some things, I, I yeah. would think on the stretch. So Doc has done a, a masterful job with that. and not even just like the way that he, starts different guys at the different moments, like the different defensive schemes, not just the drop coverage, but um like they were icing Trey a little bit. So like, they, like he was trying they were doing the double drag, which Atlanta loves double drag with Collins and, and and Capella. And with the double drag, like they were they were showing high on the second screen, and so the Trey hat couldn't go around it, and then he had to go to the middle of the floor to get it by anybody, and Joel was right there to stop him. <laughs> so, like, 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 he had nowhere to go. So it, it, they, they've done a really good job of not only like adjusting, but almost being like a little bit, um, played kind of playing dumb, if you will, a little bit mm-hmm. like, like like the media and being a little bit like, um, what's the word? I forget the word, but, um, basically saying, like, well, we don't know. We're, we're, just gonna, we're gonna watch, yeah. we're gonna adjust yeah. we're gonna come to the next game. Lo and behold, it's a whole different coverage. Like they're doing right. <laughs> really different. So it's, they, they've done a, Doc's done a fantastic job of, of, I think, assessing where and when and what to change. And that's why they're up two to one, looking to go three to one tonight. Um, but the other story of game three, Ben Simmons. Yeah. Uh, his third quarter was sensational. My dad called me at, ha- my, dad, my, my dad was at the shore. Uh, I <laughs> had to work. I had to work that day, so I, I was at work, and then I covered the game. I came down like twelve thirty that night at the shore. My dad calls me at halftime. He's like, "I would trade Ben Simmons. So <laughs> he's like, he sucks. He's the like, he's this. He's that." I'm like, "I'm like you're basically every person on Twitter. Like yep. you, that's basically what you are, Dad." And then I call him midway through the third quarter. I said, "You owe Ben an apology. <laughs> like, I apologize for nothing." Um, yeah. Ben dominated the Hawks thoroughly in that third quarter just absolutely went to work Um, and credit to doc for getting him more involved in the offense. They ran a couple of those. um, I think it's called Chicago slice Uh, credit to Dan Olinger of Liberty ballers for doing a great film breakdown on that on Twitter, but um, they, they did a tremendous job of basically just getting Ben more involved in the offense in the post.
1: Yeah, I mean, Derek Bodner of The Athletic tweeted a clip of this, I think, during the game, but also included in his breakdown afterward. There was, you know, late in the first half, Ben is, like, under the rim. He could easily go for a layup or even a dunk. It wasn't even, like, a layup. Like, he is just right under. There is no one who can really contest that shot. And he passes out with, like, three seconds left to Seth, who is covered, I think. Uh, which it was in, a shot ended. clock violation. Yeah, 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 yeah. So... You know, there there's a fine line between, like, the Ben Simmons discourse is just it, a whole, you know. It's, it's nauseating. monster at it's this nauseating. point. But, like, he's not going to be LeBron James. He's never going to develop into that high level of a scorer. But you do just need him to be selectively aggressive is how I would phrase it. Like, you are wasting possessions. You don't want him to take eight threes in a playoff game like Giannis because he's not going to hit. Many, if any of them, you're wasting possessions. You you want your offense to run through Joel, Tobias, you know, Joe through the shooters. Like Ben, his his purpose is driving and kicking. And then if they're double covering Joe, then that's going to open lanes for him. We saw it in the Wizards series as well, how, you know, there are certain games he dominated game one as a facilitator, game two, he took over more as a scorer. So they, it doesn't even need to be a full game of aggressive Ben Simmons. Maybe you just play it out and see, okay. This is how they're defending Joe tonight. This is how I need to react accordingly. But, yeah, I think you said it well. You know, Doc said after the game, they, they went to Ben at halftime and really challenged him to get more aggressive, and we saw that in the third quarter. So, I mean, I think especially with Hunter out and with Reddish out, we're seeing some of the same storylines play out within the Wizards series where it's just like the Hawks do not have the forwards to defend Ben yeah. or Tobias. And if they just take advantage of those mismatches, it, you know, especially with what Embiid is doing as well, it's like if you can't defend any of the Sixers' three best players, you're probably not going to win this series.
0: Yeah, for sure. Um, and I think it's kind of funny. Like they had Gallinari on him, Ben yeah. saw Gallinari and was like licking his lips. He was yeah. uh, he, he. It was a quick. It was a jab to the left, and then oh, I'm not going to jab. I'm going to go around you. And yes. you're going to have to grab him by the hips and like <laughs> dance with me in order to, in order to like stop me. And well, Ben was like going to the free throw line and he, he, he missed three of them, I think. But Gallinari was like, I got no shot. I'm going to just wrap this guy up and, and let him get free shots at the line. Cause there's no way.
1: Yeah. I mean, there was a, you know, I think he took only three shots in game two, but the one he missed, it was again, one-on-one Simmons on Gallinari. And like he, Ben was backing him down in the post and then just took, like, a really wide step around him and tried to force a layup that he missed. It was just like, this is another area where it's like, I don't, it, okay, yeah, Ben, he needs to develop a jumper. Yes, to reach his ceiling, to maximize the Sixers ceiling. Yes, that would help. A good player needs to get better. This is not news. Breaking, uh, wow, headline. Yeah, <laughs> but, but it was like, if you if you have that matchup, you do need to score two points. Or, as you said, you know, just draw a foul. Because even if you miss both of those free throws, you're getting your team one step closer to the bonus. And when you have Joel Embiid who is a foul drawing magnet, like all of a sudden you could be in the bonus with six, seven, eight minutes left in the quarter. And that's gonna help at ed- break out any, you know, if your offense gets bogged down at times, just throw it to the big man and have him draw a foul.
0: Yeah. Or by the way, when you're in the bonus with that much time left, you're also actively Creating more rest for yourself within the yeah. game, without having to sub out because you're waiting for the guy at the free throw line. Now, granted, he's not Giannis; he doesn't need like a <laughs> minute at, at the free throw line to then brick a free throw anyway. Um, you know, but it, it does give you time to, to recharge um, and you know get get ready for the next possession. But I think with like the Ben discourse, and I, and I do love how like like Ben says, "Well, I, I'm going to look, I'm just looking for my guys, and you know, I get them involved." Yeah, you got them involved. You threw the ball to Seth, who has had no chance of getting get, getting anything done in that possession. Like, you really bailed him out there. Right. <laughs> and really, you just added to his turnover total because he had no chance of getting that. Um, but like, the thing I say about Ben is, like, people want to want to complain and want to cry about, like, three shots. How could the guy take three shots? He's a max player. If Ben is – if, if Joel is in the MVP conversation and Tobias is a fringe all-star, those guys have to get more shots to score more points. That means, by the way of math, just by simple math, someone has to take less shots. <laughs> ben Simmons is the guy taking less shots. That's why this is happening. So, if you want to like like you can't like say like oh this is fantastic. Joel's the MVP MVP favorite, and then clown Ben Simmons for taking three shots because one of those two things has to give in order for in order for that dynamic to work. You you have to mix those things together somehow. Um, So I I do think that Ben has to be more consistent and aggressive. And, like, he has to make up his mind, hey, I'm going to get to the rim against this guy every time. And there were times when, like, he had Trey Young on him. In the first couple games, he wasn't recognizing it. And it was like, I'm passing out of this. Like, no, you need to get him, like, under you and get him to foul you and go to the line. Even if you miss both free throws, you're getting him one step closer to being shelved for the next six minutes of play, which is massive. Um So, you know the the Ben I I think was as big of a reason they win that game as anything.
1: uh, Oh, for sure, yeah, for sure, for sure.
0: Now you now speaking of Ben and mismatches, you did have some John Collins takes, Mm -hmm. and I I think (laughs) I think now would be as good a time as any to let you unravel them.
1: If I'm the Atlanta Hawks and I'm I'm facing the dilemma of whether to match a John Collins max offer or near max offer this summer. I am saying goodbye, John Collins. Good luck on your next team because I just do not think he is the right fit for that team, especially at that price point. I think now, I mean, if like the fact that the Hawks are even competitive in this series without DeAndre Hunter, who is just low key very important to what they do, like their yes. best two way forward by far, yeah. um, it, it's a testament really to the talent of this team. But if you can rock next year, like you could start a lineup of Trey, Bogdan, Reddish, DeAndre Hunter at the four, Clint Capella, you still have Kevin Herter and Gallo off the bench. You have, you know, Agonku. you have Chris Dunn, you have whoever you pick in the draft. Like, that's a rock-solid 10-man rotation without even considering who you're taking in free agency, like any trades you make, whatever the case may be. So, like, the Hawks have something here. I am super high on their future, regardless of how this series plays out. And I just think, you know, this, the modern day NBA, it's hard to start a power forward like John Collins. I think it's hard to do this too big lineup unless, you know, if you have an Anthony Davis and you want to get away with it in the regular season because he doesn't want to play center until the playoffs, that's fine. But, you know, the more that we're seeing the Tobias Harris's and like, you know, Jason Tatum's playing four at times, like we've seen this, what would have been a tweener five to 10 years ago, that's just the modern day for now. So a guy like John Collins, he's going to get, you know, he can average 20 and 10 and great. I think, you know, good regular season player. I don't know that he's cut out necessarily to be a max player, especially considering, you know, like if you look at the box, where what he's doing in this series he's averaging 17 and seven But a lot of that is Trey just creating for him and him dunking home lobs, right? Like he's not creating for himself. He's not providing much of an impact on defense. So it's like, what are you bringing to the table? That's going to make you worthy of being the second highest paid player on this team. Once Trey young gets his extension.
0: Right? Like, so many, so many of the points that he scored in the series have been just like transition. I'm going to sprint ahead, wait for the angle to come, and then I'm just going to dive at the rim and I'm going to jump and Trey's going to lob it to me and I'm going to get dunked out of this. Right. And like, like he he hasn't shot the lights out except he, I think he shot pretty well in game one, but he hasn't like been a massive pain as a stretch guy. Um, and I mean, I guess theoretically you could lean into like, well, we're going to go small ball and maybe you get rid of Capella and then you run John at the five. And I mean, I don't, I don't know what the numbers look, look like on that. I venture to say he probably can't play too much small ball five. Um, but the principle of, of, of just the, we're going to go all out. We're going to spread it out. Five guys out on the floor. We're going to drag your big out to the perimeter and we're going to run layup lines around you. Um, I think John Collins could be conducive to that, but mm-hmm. I'm not paying him a max contract. I mean, so many guys like, throw like we're just throwing out the max contract now a guy has like one season where he averages 18 points a game or like one season where he averages 20 or breaks through there and it's like oh well i'm just gonna go get my max contract now like <laughs> like, like let's let's try again let's, right. try, let's try again um so
1: it, i mean you bring up a fair point like you i would I, I think you know as well as doc has been coaching in this series i feel like nate mcmillan has left a lot on the table and yes that like if, I, I agree. John Collins at the five, not a permanent solution, but considering how the Sixers have struggled defending stretch bigs, especially Dwight defending stretch bigs. Yeah. It's crazy to me that we have not seen John Collins play much of the five in this series. Like there okay. should be small, but like whenever Clint Capella is on the floor, there should be five out through Atlanta.
0: Yep. Absolutely. I'll tell you this. Like, it isn't even and going off of that like it isn't even like capella has been a massive like 20 and 15 guy this series that has cemented himself as somebody who you just can't take off the floor in this series he hasn't been that he joel has neutralized him he averaged i think 13 and 15 this season it is is what capella averaged he's getting like a pedestrian 10 rebounds a game in, in this series so he hasn't really done anything to to warrant this you know um I'm, in, I'm married to this to this guy at the five. They could easily be going with John Collins at the five spot, which I think kind of breaks into the next point of um, what the Hawks have left to do. I was actually reading some of the athletic stuff from their point of view yesterday, just because I was I was watching Nets game. And I was bored, um, and the beat guys were like, I'm, I was kind of surprised by how the beat guys for the Hawks were kind of writing a eulogy, uh, and oh. it was like it was they were very much so like. Well, they had a good run, but, <laughs> but, but 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 this team, you know, it just felt like Friday. This team was done for. I'm thinking, I'm like, the hell are you talking about? This, yeah. this team is a very good team. Like, I'm I think the Hawks are a much bigger thorn in the side than anyone has given them credit for. I mean, they had the they had the anomalous game in game one where they shot what 20 of 47 from three and granted like some of that is, they're just a very good shooting team. Like from like a personnel standpoint, other part of it is like the Sixers have ratcheted up the defense tremendously, but this Hawks team has a lot of tools that can, that theoretically can hurt the Sixers. They have a, a, a low center of gravity point guard. They have a bunch of guys that can clear off the dribble. Um, this Hawks team, I don't think is done by any stretch. I think I think, actually think I wouldn't surprise me at all. If they, if they win the night and it's two, two going back to Philly. Um, but what do you think the Hawks have left that they can really adjust to? I mean, like you said, the the, the John Collins small ball lineups, but I, I guess like you could instead of going with uh Solomon Hill or Tony Yes, Cornell,
1: <laughs> yes that is exactly what I would I, 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 that's that I mean when I say Nate McMillan has left stuff on the table. Like, that was one of my big questions coming into the series. This was before I knew Hunter was out. So I thought he was actually going to play. But I thought there wasn't a good place for Seth Curry to hide defensively in this series. Like, we saw him, I think Snell was the one starting in that third regular season game. So he spent most of his time there. Um, But yeah, I mean, giving him a place to hide on Solomon Hill for the first three games, because like, Solomon Hill is not going to break Seth Curry down off the dribble. Solomon Hill, that's just not his game. So, Yeah. It's, it's wild that they, you know, they didn't play some solid middle in the second half. They started Tony Snell. It's like, that's no better that you're not, you're replacing one forward. Who's not going to do this with another. So I would go, I know Nate McMillan says he likes Kevin Herter off the bench, but I would lean towards starting Herter in game four. And you have, you know, Trey Herter, Bogdan, especially with Danny Green out. If you, you know, if you have Curry and Korkmaz in the backcourt, that's, two wink links to go after defensively and you know, maybe it doesn't matter because you have that back line of Simmons, Tobias and Joel, but all three of those guys can rain threes. And I think that's been one of the big keys of the series. You know, as you said, the game one, they just shot the lights out of the ball ever since the Sixers have made a real focus of just stopping them, not even making them miss three point shots, stopping them from taking them. Yeah. But I mean, the Sixers early in the season, especially, found themselves on the wrong side of that math equation more often than not, where they just weren't taking a high volume of threes and they were losing these close games because they were getting wildly outscored from deep. So if I'm Atlanta, i like, I don't have hopes of beating the Sixers at their own game. Like the Sixers have the second best defense in the league. We're not going to out defense them. So I'm just going to put as many possible scoring threats out of the floor together And you still have Gallo and Lou Williams off the bench. It's not like your bench is completely devoid of scoring threats, even if you put Herder in the starting lineup. But yeah, I mean, I I would shorten the rotation. I would basically go those five, Gallo, Lou. And then, you know, if you need a few spot minutes from Solomon Hill or Tony Snell, fine. But like, this should really be a seven man rotation tonight.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think like this is not a, a, a lineup solution that you can gravitate towards and to win a series but if you have simmons in there you have um any of the sixers guards that are younger in there you're gonna sacrifice a lot on defense doing this but trey and lou on the floor on the mm-hmm. floor at the same time y- you have a lot of potency in the turn in terms of like i'm gonna beat you in 2000 in a row and get you, at, mm-hmm. get you out of the game and act out of the half uh they could do that in the fir- in the end of the first quarter, middle of the second quarter, when you're not in as high leverage moments as you are in the fourth quarter. But just to get two quick fouls on any number of Sixers um, with with this contact baiting, I think would be a massive uh, thing for the Hawks to do. I also think like one thing the Sixers have done a lot better in this series that I thought they would be is playing the lobs really well in the half court. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like like Simmons has has done a really good job of gambling. Um when the lob takes off instead of like waiting for it too long. And he, as a result, they have knocked the ball away from Colin and Capella a ton to get in transition. And it's been really good at the rim for them. Um, if I'm, if I'm the Hawks, I'm going to wait and draw that defender a little bit, maybe a little bit farther away just by like putting a little bit pressure on the rim. And then I'm going to throw the lob and that mm-hmm. way like Simmons can't gamble too far off or else Trey's making a skip pass uh to the weak side. So, you know, I, I probably be, hey, listen, like you gotta wait a little bit longer on that yeah. on that pass. Time it a little bit, time a little bit later. We'll, we'll still be there for you, um, but you know, you don't give them as much time to, re- to gamble and recover on that on that lob pass. I think that could that could change things a little bit, but I still ultimately think that the Sixers they, they take care of game two. Uh, that game was as stressful as they come, as well. Because yeah. like, like the Sixers still weren't playing that well after the first quarter. Um. Huh. And game three, I was kind of surprised at how like stress free it was for the most part, other than like Embiid like grabbing his his, yeah. his legs. Anytime he grabs his legs, I'm just like, start drinking scotch. Let's go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But what it, what is your pulse on this series? Well, you, you I, I it sounds like you're pretty confident in the Sixers have this at hand.
1: I, I mean, I think the adjustments they've made have been the right ones and I'm glad it didn't take them too long to make them. I'm curious to see if McMillan makes some of the obvious ones for game four because it felt like really they should have done it for game three and they didn't, I guess, you know, you, you figure you're going home, you split at home, you stole home court advantage. So you feel like you have the upper hand in that series, but at the same time you lose one game at home and you've given it right back. So I it like uh, that, the Hawks team just kind of felt, I don't want to say complacent, but like not making those adjustments preemptively, even though it was very obvious that Solomon Hill was providing nothing for you. Like, I think doc is just going to outcoach Nate McMillan in this series based on how the first three games have gone. Um, I mean, I'm I'm really curious to see how tonight plays out, especially with who the Sixers start in place of green. If it's Maz, do they target him defensively? How does a Curry Maz backcourt hold up? I think you're totally right about you know foul baiting. Lord knows Trey has been doing it the whole series. That you know, Joel's not innocent in that regard either. So no,
0: no. <laughs> fans cannot be
1: too
0: quick no. you know, to 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 whine about foul baiting, nor can Hawks fans, but no Citrus no. fans have, have been treated to a a fair share of their favorable foul baiting over the years. That's
1: yes, I mean. yeah. But I think to your earlier point about the Hawks, like yeah, I think Going like go back to the before the start of the playoffs when the brackets are set, you know it's Brooklyn Milwaukee on the other side, and it's uh, Hawks Knicks in the first round. There was some question I think like Harrison Grimm of Liberty Ballers posted a poll like who would you rather see in the second round, and most people picked the Hawks, which just blew my mind. <laughs> like the the Knicks would have gotten swept. The Knicks would have yeah. been like a stress free. Easy. I mean, if you think they struggled offensively against the Hawks, imagine what they would do against the Sixers. They'd average 80 points a game.
0: Mind you, the, the, the Knicks lost to the Sixers once this season at, in New York without Joel Embiid playing.
1: Yes. So, <laughs> right. Like, like, What would they have done
0: with him playing?
1: <laughs> nothing good. So, I, I mean, I think really since the start of the playoffs, people were underrating the Hawks. At the time, I you know DeAndre Hunter was coming back, so I thought that was going to be a big missing piece for them because he had missed so much of the season. But early on, he was great. I mean, he was – like the first 15 games or so of the season, it looked like he was taking like a big second-year leap. Uh, so I thought him getting back into the picture was going to be huge for them, and I picked them to beat the Knicks pretty handily in that series, which thankfully aged well. Um, I, I do – again, I think with Hunter out, with Reddish out, it's just tough unless they figure out some counter for MB. And I think that's really been the story of the series, right? Like game one, Trey Young had his way, at least the first half, and they had done enough damage to hold off the Sixers by the end. But the, the Sixers have figured out a way to slow down Trey Young. You're not going to stop Trey Young completely. He's yep. going to get, you know, 25 points, 10 assists. But if you can make him turn the ball over, do it inefficiently, that's all you can ask for. I think they've done that well. Yeah. The Hawks still have no answer for Joel Embiid. I mean, he he had like a, a Jokic-esque almost triple-double in game three. Like that, you know, his development, it, we've talked all year about the development, the shooting in the mid-range game, but his development as a passer too just cannot go understated because he would get, you know, in past playoffs especially, he knew like, all right, I'm the focal point of the offense. They're going to double-team me, but – he got flustered by those. This year, it's just he has gotten so much better at reading the floor and making – there was one pass he made that was just, like, outrageous. I think it was to Seth on the complete opposite yes, side of the court. Yes, and Seth, I
0: remember – remember I think Seth missed the shot. he, he did. But yeah. I remember thinking, like, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I'm
1: like that, that should go in highlight reels, even though Seth missed the shot. That should still go in a bead highlight rule because it was just – he just didn't have that in his bag before this year.
0: Those are like those are like those are the plays that everyone fawns over Jokic for. Yeah, and like and like and like Embiid's there making them. And by the way, like I think if Embiid ever number one, like health health permitting, of course, but if he can ever get himself to a point where he has a positive assist turnover ratio, then that's when you have a, a bona fide, not even like MVP candidate, but this guy is the best player in the league. Um, yeah. And like, like the other night he had eight assists. I don't think he had, I think he had one turnover maybe. And I was like, that is the most complete game. Joel has really like played maybe all season from what I can remember. Um, But that was massive that that he was able to take care of the ball. Um, So I don't really have a read on the night. I think you're going to figure out what team is what team um, in the first quarter like if the Sixers come out just blazing hot and the Hawks are look basically out of it, I think the series is ostensibly over just because you win game four and they're building, you take their hearts. They have to then travel to Philly to win game five where, listen, good luck to you. Um, Yeah. yeah. Whereas like, I think, I still think the Sixers would win the series in six, even if, even if the Hawks win tonight, but I, I think the Sixers can really put themselves in an excellent position, obviously to get to the conference finals. If they, if they, take care of business tonight for sure. a um, couple other things around the NBA. Um, the one thing that Joel Embiid did not do like Nikola Jokic with in it, with the triple double was <laughs> then go ahead and swing on a guy.
1: <laughs> gets his for a
0: rebound. and, gets, and, get, and get ejected. Yeah. What a bizarre way to end a season.
1: For it was I, I my favorite part was how like all of Nuggets Twitter was like that's a flagrant one. And everyone else was like, that's a clear flagrant to get this dude out of the game. He karate chopped someone in the face. <laughs> like I
0: was at dinner and I picked the wrong game to go to dinner, obviously, but I'm reading, I'm like scrolling back through Twitter on my way home. And I, all I see is like three wows in a row. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I need to find the video of what the wowing is about. And then lo and behold, it's a Jokic gets ejected. So I'm trying to find the video. Honestly, the replay shows it wasn't as bad as the live action showed. And I thought Kevin Harlan was going to, like, go bananas like he does on every dramatic call. But, like, like it was a very clear wind-up and shot. You can't do that. And he didn't – but Cameron Payne obviously sold that, too, because he wasn't hit in the face. Like, there was no – there was no contact to the face. It was a clearly – I don't know if it was a play on the ball but it was definitely not as bad as it looked. But, like, what are you doing in that instance? Like, you, like you're very clear. Like, you wound up and you chop the guy. You can't do that. It's obviously a flagrant, too. Everyone knows it. And right. uh, that's the way the season ends, unfortunately, for Nikola Jokic. And the irony, of course, being that he wins an MVP trophy on the basis of availability, <laughs> only to not be available when his team needed him the most.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I, I think it was a, a clear frustration failure. down 3-0. It looks like you're going to get swept in that, you know, in game four. And it, it you know, emotions just got the best of them. So I don't, I don't want it to like say, you know, because he got ejected, he shouldn't have won MVP. He was yeah. a deserving MVP. Yes. You know, like it, it, and this, this is that series doesn't reflect on a full strength Nuggets team. Yeah. You know, it, Chris Paul and Devin Booker versus Austin Rivers and Facundo Capacho. Like that's what I said going into the series. That's what I say coming out. It was such like all star team versus G League mismatch that the Nuggets had no chance. I, I did not understand the optimism coming from Nuggets fans going into that series where they're like, it, like I picked the Suns in five and caught crap from it from some Nuggets fans who I need to actually go troll <laughs> today. <laughs> But they're like, Jokic isn't going to lose four in five games. I'm like, oh, you know what? Actually, you are right. He did not lose four in five games. Yes, it, 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 he,
0: the fan who got in trouble for punching the other guy in yeah. school was actually a fortune teller. He said, son's and four, and he was absolutely right. It was yeah. sons four. But I tell you what I've learned in playoffs. I've actually grown to hate not just the Miami Heat fan base, mm-hmm. but every fan base, including no. the Sixers fans. I do yeah. not like any fan base. I am the I am the I am the unbiased third party observer who's like, you know what? All of you people are impossible and intolerable. So
1: it's like, every game and every series does not need to be a referendum on yes. who a player is. Like Giannis after game two was like this dude's a fraud. He's not even a top five player. Is he an eighty-two game player? It's like yeah. now they're tied two-two and are probably favorites to win this series given the Nets injuries. Like nothing changed about Giannis. It was just like it, it was a bad break for the the Bucks at first. Like the Dante Divincenzo injury, I think, really yeah. hurt them in the series low key. And now, obviously, the all the Nets injuries mounting as well.
0: But also, like if you have to start Dante Divincenzo to the point where he's an enormous loss. Yeah. Even as a Nova alumni, I have to say, like, you probably aren't that deep at the shooting guard spot if that's like your, oh, this is our premier shooting guard. We have now uh, suffered an an enormous loss. Like, (laughs) (laughs) it didn't bode well for you either way. But I agree with you. The referendum stuff is very annoying to me. Like, every, every, with every singular tweet, you have like a, a guy whose profile picture is like, not that guy whose yeah. username is something like season or I see this guy or I see the <laughs> Russell. And it's like 25,000 followers. Who's like, Ooh, ratio. Or, yeah. like, 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 like shut up. All yeah. of these fans are horrible. I can't stand it. There's no nuanced discourse anymore.
1: No, well there is, you just have to, you have to really like curate your Twitter timeline and yes. just I, my best advice, especially since having a kid, cause now I really don't have time to do it, but it's like, if someone tweets something dumb at you, just don't respond. Like, don't waste your time because you're not going to, like, convince – all of a sudden you're acting in, like, a 20-tweet argument and at the end. Like, you know what? That's a really good point. I actually never saw it that way. Like, you're right. not going to win. Just don't waste your time. It's going to end up with an LMAO ratio with the block. It's exactly yeah. it's- <laughs> right. No one
0: has ever admitted to, a, to being wrong on Twitter. Right. And it's, and it's going to lose your followers anyway. So yes. it's not worth it um brian thanks so much for stopping by uh we, we have a game tonight i have to go cover that game I'm, i presume you are on baby duties
1: tonight uh hopefully i my wife is gonna i was on baby duty all day so hopefully i will be able to at least enjoy the game before he ruins my night
0: <laughs> wow okay <laughs> i love my son but
1: yeah <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> brian they can find they can find you can find brian's work on on twitter obviously I believe the handle is BeatPorek. Uh, you can also find him editing stuff on Bleacher Report and writing for Forbes on the business of sports and the NBA as a whole. And fan-sided apparently, as well. I did not know that. But, Brian, thanks so much for stopping by. Of course, Austin. Anytime, man. Take care.